0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane, coming to you from Nippaluna, Hobart. Putting up the price of postage stamps and cutting back daily letter deliveries are some of the ideas being floated in a shake-up of Australia Post. It's because fewer people are sending letters, and instead, Australia Post has been trying to focus on its booming parcel delivery business, highlighted in slick advertising campaigns like this.
0: Yep, Aussies are sending
2: like never before, so we're sorting like never before. You're shopping like never before, so we're shipping like never before.
1: So, could some post offices and even the red letter boxes on streets start to disappear? The federal government's released a discussion paper warning that changes are needed to make Australia Post financially stable. Our senior business correspondent Peter Ryan has been speaking with the federal communications minister, Michelle Rowland.
3: Well, I think the reality is that Australians are actually posting and also receiving less and less letters. And at the same time, we have increasing demand for parcel services and we've also got increasing international competition. Those types of competitors don't have the obligations that uh, Australia Post does have to the community when it comes to other services like letters.
4: So is the letter dead or dying and not worth the cost of delivering given changing consumer demands and attitudes who've gone increasingly digital?
3: Well, letters are certainly still being sent, but the reality is that 97% of them are actually being sent by business and government. But Australia Post um, has that obligation, and as long as people want to send letters, those letters will be delivered.
4: I see in the discussion paper that even the price of a stamp gets a bit of a mention. Would you like to be the Minister for Communications who bumps up the price of a postage stamp?
3: Well, let's be clear. The uh, approval for postage stamp increases is one that's done through um, a regulatory process. But also, um, I note that as we have people... uh, A decrease in the number of people actually uh, purchasing stamps, Australia Post makes a submission to the regulator um, on that basis as well.
4: Does this discussion paper open up the option or the possibility of selling Australia Post off to private interests, which has happened in other countries around the world?
3: absolutely not. And the guiding principles, the very first one, explicitly states that Australia Post will remain in full public ownership.
4: What about the community service obligation to service all parts of Australia, including rural and remote areas? That cost $348 million last financial year. So is that obligation to the community going to be axed?
3: No. Australians do expect that they are going to be able to receive their parcels and their letters within a certain timeframe. But of course, parcels are not part of these performance standards. So that's precisely what we want to examine through this consultation process.
4: There are currently 4,300 post offices around the country. How many of them do you think might be closed?
3: Well, we're not making any decisions as a result of this discussion paper process, but we do know how important those post offices are in regional Australia. But we want to understand how we can make them more viable.
4: Is that the same with the 15? Thousand red post boxes that Australia Post has around the country, would they be scaled back?
3: Well, again, no decisions are being made here, but I would point out we see these post boxes, but um, many of your listeners might uh, or might not remember the last time they actually used one of those street posting boxes as well. And again, that wouldn't be surprising.
4: Australia Post has more than 60,000 workers, but quite a few of them would be from the old Australia Post that you're wanting to modernise. Would some of those workers be made redundant or sacked to make way for the expansion of the more lucrative freight business?
3: Well, again, we're making no decisions and we have been very engaged with the Australia Post workforce and its representatives because that's the only way we can have uh, sustainable jobs and good job opportunities, ones that are relevant to changing consumer needs.
1: Communications Minister Michelle Rowland speaking there with Peter Ryan. Multiple interest rate rises and high inflation are beginning to bite on the Australian economy. Official figures show the economy grew by just 0.5% in the final three months of last year. And while inflation might have peaked, small business owners and families are still anxious about the cost of living, particularly when there's a chance of a tenth straight interest rate rise by the Reserve Bank next week. Catherine Gregory reports.
2: As Bill Toskus closes up his cafe for the day in Sydney's south-east, he's not too optimistic about the months ahead.
3: The cost of goods that are rising and everything else that's coming along, it's hurt hurt all of us, everybody.
2: There is a sliver of good news. Inflation has fallen slightly to 7.4 per cent, meaning the price for goods and services might have peaked.
3: At the moment, I don't think anything's stopped just yet. Because it doesn't look like anything slowing down interest rate rising.
2: Household spending is also slowing, while the rate of household savings has dropped to its lowest level in five years. Bill Toskus is seeing the impact of all that firsthand.
3: We've seen people's daily spend absolutely drop where we'd get people coming in for two coffees a day, a sandwich, a cake and so on and so forth. They've cut it down now to one coffee a day.
2: Rose and her two young children have just finished food shopping, which these days requires a bit more budgeting.
5: We're more conscious of our spending. It's definitely uh, weighing more on our minds now.
2: Because the family is renting in Sydney while paying a mortgage on a Victorian property, rising interest rates are also a problem.
5: We're feeling the pinch um, and it just
2: feels like it's going up and up and up. Our rent's gone up too. There's news out that inflation looks like it's peaked. So is that welcome news for you or are you still worried about the next year
0: or so?
5: No, I'm still worried uh, because we are thinking of selling our property in in Melbourne and I'm told that we might be looking at a recession. Possibly.
2: The Australian economy grew by just 0.5% in the
5: December quarter. Show more signs of a slowdown in the economy than we were expecting. Felicity Emmett is a senior economist at ANZ. We're seeing the impact of both very high inflation and also the very sharp lift in interest rates that we've seen over the past year or so flowing through Uh, to consumer spending. We are a bit concerned that perhaps the impact of rate hikes is coming through a bit earlier than we previously thought.
2: Do you think this might influence the RBA next week to not
5: raise interest rates? Look, I think the strength in inflationary pressures, which is still evident in this report, suggests that we will get another rate hike
2: next week. But Felicity Emmett thinks cost of living pressures could improve this year.
5: I think it's a bit early to sort of be worrying too much about recession. I think what it might mean is that we might see the Reserve Bank um, pause over the next few months to really reassess the data.
1: ANZ Senior Economist Felicity Emmett, Catherine Gregory reporting. There have been some high-profile data breaches in recent times. Optus and Medibank Private are two notable cases. But new data from the Office of the Information Commissioner shows there were just under 500 breaches in the second half of last year, almost three-quarters of them blamed on malicious or criminal activity. It comes as small businesses put on notice that they too might soon be legally required to protect your personal information, as political reporter Nicole Hegarty explains.
6: In the midst of a busy day at her Sydney travel agency, Donna Meads Barlow is a little surprised to hear her business may soon be legally required to protect her customers' personal information.
7: If the exemption's scrapped, then obviously there's an additional cost at my point. I mean, spent 40 years in the industry plus, that might be the end of me.
6: Australia's two and a half million small businesses with an annual turnover of $3 million or less currently have an exemption from data privacy laws. But a government commissioned review of the Privacy Act suggests changing that. And Donna Meads Barlow says it's terrible timing.
7: Pre-COVID, we were a very large business that was turning over in excess of 25 mil. Post-COVID, we are now a business that fits into that less than 3 mil.
6: Australia's Information and Privacy Commissioner Angeline Fork says the uptake of digital technology has increased the risk of small businesses being the target of cybercrime.
5: It really came about in a very different era, over 20 years ago, when the risks posed by small business to Australians' personal information was very low.
6: That growing risk is supported by the Actuaries Institute, which found hackers view smaller businesses as easier targets. And last year, the Australian Cybersecurity Centre found small businesses faced an average cost of $39,000 per cybercrime report. Cybersecurity expert Professor Matt Warren is from RMIT.
2: They don't necessarily have the expertise or the systems in place to protect the information they hold, but yet they can hold credit card details, passport details, anything a cyber attacker would be very interested in.
6: Commissioner Angeline Fork explains what small businesses
5: might face. If they were to be brought into the Act, then... They would need to tell their customers how they're handling personal information. They would have to have a privacy policy. They'd need to ensure that they kept personal information secure. Elizabeth
6: Skirving, who's the Deputy Chair of the Council of Small Business Organisations, says the cost burden of removing the exemption is too high.
5: We understand the concern that people have uh, with regard to privacy and data security. We really believe that there should be a, a scaled response dealing with small businesses. They are resource and time poor.
6: For small business owners like Donna Mead's Barlow, any changes would mean she'd like government support to help meet the new obligations.
1: I think they would need to cut us some sort of slack. I
7: understand cybersecurity, I understand the Privacy Act, but for us to be able to report, that's a substantial cost that's required to a small business with very little income.
6: Submissions to the review close at the end of the month.
1: Nicole Hegarty reporting there. From the Kimberley to Alice Springs and Townsville, communities are grappling with how to curb youth crime. Some want a tougher approach, but there are also advocates and justice experts who'd say it would be better to invest in prevention measures, Isabel Masali reports.
7: At a national conference in Perth there's a group of people who've been caught on the wrong side of the criminal justice system. And while they have their own stories about how they got there, they hope by sharing their experiences they can stop others from ending up behind bars.
6: Yeah, it's the best I've felt ever. Like, yeah, to, to be able to get my story out is is going to be an amazing thing.
7: This man has spent most of his life in prison, including for drug and gang related offences. He believes if he'd been given more support as a teenager, instead of being sent to youth detention, it could have been very different.
6: Like I wanted to be in the army. You know, I, was, I was always a straight A and B student at school, even though because of my offences and because I was, didn't have the stability, I wasn't going to school properly and had truancy officers involved. And so I think if, if we had a, nipped it on the butt before it started, it would have stopped. You know, like I highly doubt it would have gone down that road.
7: As we talk about youth crime across the country, he says it can be stopped if state and federal leaders are prepared to put the work in.
6: Let's stop rubber stamping funding for stupid stuff and let's actually get to the ground roots of why this is happening.
7: Former offender Sarah agrees. She's now with the Justice Reform Initiative, which advocates for more investment in measures such as early intervention programs. To me, I still see them as children. Like I was a child going through a lot of stuff. I didn't have support. I didn't have supportive... Adults, because, you know, they themselves have gone through their own things as well. So, but yeah, there's so much punishment. Governments are attempting to tackle the problem. In WA, for example, the government says it's put in place a range of diversionary and early intervention measures for young people and adults. Leanne Little is the director of the NT government's Aboriginal Justice Unit and is also with the Menzies School of Health Research. She was also the first Aboriginal policewoman in South Australia and is particularly concerned about the overrepresentation of First Nations kids in youth detention.
6: What I think has happened is that we've failed to pay attention to deal with the causes of what's happening in communities, of what's happening in small towns, say particularly Alice Springs, Townsville and other communities nationally. But we really need to look at where we're investing the money. Are we investing at the ambulance at the bottom of the hill scenario? Or are we at that front end dealing with the issues around preventative and at-risk kids and
1: families? Leanne Little from the Menzies School of Health Research ending that report from Isabel Masali. First, there was a war on drugs. Now, the Philippines government has declared a war on online child abuse and sexual exploitation, crimes in which an alarming number of Australians are involved. Stephanie March reports in a warning. Some listeners may find this story distressing.
0: In an office tower high above Manila, Australian Federal Police detective Natalie Rosler opens a copy of a Skype chat log. It's between a woman in the Philippines and a 68-year-old man in South Australia. In the chat, the woman has posted a photo of a very young girl. And then she sends a, an image of a small child,
2: clothed, and he said, let me watch her get undressed for me.
0: Give me a show. For less than $40, this man paid to see children as young as three be sexually exploited while he watched live, sometimes recording the abuse. Detective Rosler is part of the Philippine Internet Crimes Against Children Centre, a multinational task force based in Manila dedicated to tackling these crimes. An offender might send a
2: friend request or they might be on a dating app and they will connect to a facilitator. And um, from there, they negotiate for a child to be sexually abused and that can be live streamed in the privacy of their own homes.
0: How many cases would you and the team be working on now?
2: We have probably about um, between 50 to 60 uh, active cases at the moment. It certainly is just the tip of the iceberg.
0: Since 2019, the task force has rescued nearly 600 children and charged 120 facilitators, tragically many of whom are the children's parents. Reports of online child sexual exploitation and abuse in the Philippines more than doubled at the beginning of the pandemic, when lockdowns saw many Filipinos lose their jobs and children were forced to stay home. Kathy Nalasco is the head of the Philippines' National Bureau of Investigation's Anti-Trafficking Division. This is actually a supply and demand thing. There's a demand, so the parents here are providing the supply. So if we could work on the demand, maybe we could put a stop on this. In a country where nearly a quarter of the population lives below the poverty line, it's easy money for parents. If we go through the places where we actually conduct these operations, uh, the places are most often than not poverty-stricken. Do you believe these facilitators have no alternatives? Um, of course that's not true because we always have options. They should be the one providing for the needs of the children, not the other way around.
1: Philippines investigator Kathy Nalasco, ending that report from Stephanie March. And you can see more of that story on Foreign Correspondent, 8 o'clock tonight on ABC TV. We've been hearing how families are struggling with spiralling mort- mortgages and rents and other cost-of-living pressures over the past year. Tasmania is at the pointy end of the housing crisis. And now, right near Hobart City Centre, next to a popular rivulet, a campsite of homeless people's popped up. Alexandra Humphreys reports.
8: It's a regular weekday in Hobart. Just outside of the CBD, the rivulet park is buzzing with commuters. Off to the side, in a corner is a cluster of tents. They've been home to people like Tasha and her partner Tyson for the past couple of months. I was embarrassed and for the first few weeks out here, yeah, I'd run into the tents, run out, try not to be seen. We got to the stage where I just can't keep doing it. The couple had been living in their car but it broke down. Tyson says the weather can make it challenging. It's
3: not ideal. Like When it rains, my tent still leaks. Yeah, yesterday I'd have a- I don't know, half my clothes are wet. You got a lot of people wandering? Yeah, people wandering in this park like all hours of the night. Having a little, like, community, <laughs> it feels a lot
8: safer. It's far from private. There are toilets nearby, but the closest shower is a 15 minute walk away. But the location means they are closer to some other services.
3: Yeah, it sucks. There's, like, there's organisations out there and you know, that, but we didn't find out about any of these organisations until we actually on the streets.
8: As time goes on, Tasha says she doesn't see a way out. People seem to think it's a choice. I think we're all just doing the best we can. Another member of the community, who asked to remain anonymous, says she became homeless after fleeing family violence eight months ago. She's since spent four months on the street and four in prison. She avoided applying for bail so she could stay inside. Just the daily things that take for granted. Washing, showering, cooking, it's just basic everyday human needs are hard to meet. For now, this site offers the campers a sense of safety and community, but they all say they want a chance to get back on their feet. And in the end, it's a house
1: that will truly help. That report from Alexandra Humphreys and Lucy MacDonald. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane.
7: Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. In a suburb in the seaside city of Wollongong in New South Wales, residents want to shake things up by electrifying their homes all at the same time. They hope they can get rid of gas from their lives while showing the rest of Australia how easily it can be done. Today, Australian Stories' Olivia Rousseau, on the man who's helping them make it happen. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.
4: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives
5: on the ABC Listen app.